When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Welcome to the Mini Break, your daily podcast for the biggest storylines, results, and controversies from the tennis world. Today is Monday, February 27th. It was a jam-packed championship weekend of action on the WTA and ATP tours. And on today's show, I want to offer my thoughts on all five of the tour-level events that unfolded throughout the course of the weekend. The Biggest storyline coming off of last week's play. Guess who's back? You have multiple players returning to top form on both the WTA and ATP tours, perhaps most relevant of the bunch. The return to form of 2021 French Open champion Barbara Krejcikova. Krejcikova was unequivocally top 10, maybe even unequivocally top 5 throughout the course of the 2021 season. Of course, an injury threw her off to start last year, but we saw at the end of 2022, she wins the title in Tallinn. She wins the title in Ostrava. She brought that same sort of top 10, top 5 caliber tennis, tier 1 tennis, as we like to refer to it here on the Mini Break Podcast, to her performance in Abu Dhabi, excuse me, in Dubai this past week. And look, I mean, for Barbara Krejcikova to beat four top 10 players on her way to the title to earn a second consecutive victory in a final over world number one Iga Svantec. It's a testament to the top level tennis Krejcikova is capable of playing when at her best. And now there's no doubt she is certainly at her best. Once again, I want to talk about what allowed her to have so much success throughout the course of the week. What allows her in particular to have some success in her matchups with Iga Svantec. I do think I have found a tactical wrinkle It's not a novel concept. It's not going to be some sort of, oh, what? It's the inside hip pocket. That's the secret that's been revealed. No, it's not something like that. But I actually do think there are some structural advantages for Krejcikova in her matchup with Sviantek that make that so fascinating. So I do want to get into the weeds on that one. We'll nerd out a little bit here on today's show as we talk about all the action that unfolded in Dubai, of course, over in Doha. The week belonged to to Andy Murray. Now, Daniil Medvedev ultimately wins a second consecutive title. And folks, with that prevailing storyline, guess who's back? Daniil Medvedev is back. He's looked exceptional. I want to talk about what allowed him to continue to have so much success in Doha. And then, obviously, we got to talk Andy Murray. I mean, one could argue this podcast was founded on a foundation of support for Andy Murray. And I think he's got maybe the highest approval rating of any player right now on the ATP or WTA tours. Everyone is rooting for Andy to succeed. I do want to talk big picture, 10,000 foot view. What do these last few seasons do to Andy, not to Andy Murray's legacy, but how does this impact how many people will remember him and I think that's a fun tangent to go on here on today's show. It's a Monday. Let's have some fun. Why not go on a tangent or two? So we'll talk about all the action that unfolded in Doha, of course, over in Rio. How about Cam Nori knocking out Carlos Alcaraz in three sets? Now, I know Alcaraz was injured down the home stretch of that match, but as I learned via the commentary, it was the first time since 2016 two players had faced off in finals in back-to-back weeks, and the last time that had happened, it was Djokovic versus Murray back in 2016. Now, I'm not saying Alcaraz versus Nori is the new Djokovic versus Murray. I am saying it speaks to how well each guy is playing. It's really difficult to make finals in back-to-back weeks, and, you know, again, We'll talk a lot about Alcaraz. We'll talk a lot about Nori. I know we did a South American clay court special with David Gertler to end last week, so I apologize that I'll be regurgitating some thoughts some of you may have already heard expressed. But look, ATP Rio event last week was the highest level event. So obviously, we got to spend some time talking Rio. We got to talk Hoopy Hercots in Marseille, the title over Benjamin Bonzi. What was most impressive is Hercots clearly got better with every match as he progressed through the Marseille draw. And I was on the call for his three-set win against Michael Emer. He was bad. 
in that match. It was not the prettiest tennis. And yet, Hubi, again, progressively gets better. He has an ability to win ugly. He has an ability to do a lot of things. So we'll talk about him, I suppose. He's back. Alcaraz, by the way, would qualify probably for the guess who's back category, assuming he's healthy. Nori, I don't know if he ever left, but he's certainly back uh, to start this season. And then in Mexico, I guess one could argue Camila Georgie is back following her run to the title there. She knocks out Rebecca Peterson in the final. It was a really good week for her, a good week for Katie McNally as well. Again, you get five tour-level events. You got plenty of meat on the bone for us to discuss here on today's show. So we'll take a look at all of the action that unfolded. I want to get all of you listeners up to date so that you feel prepared to tackle another jam-packed week of action in the pro tennis world. Of course, before we get to anything from the past weekend, a massive shout out first and foremost to all of you who do take the time to tune in day in, day out. It means the world to me. I'll tell you this from a schedule standpoint, I'm actually going to be in Indianapolis this week. I haven't been home for a week consecutively in like a month and a half. I'm looking forward to the opportunity, A, to sleep, of course, but B, when I'm well-rested, I like to think it means better podcasts for all the listeners. And then C, you know what I'm going to have time to do this week? I don't know. Hey, David Kane, what are you up to? Gil Gross, I know we were spending a lot of time together in LA, but you want to come on the show. I'm going to get at least at least two guests this week. That's my promise to all of you. At least two guests on the mini break this week. So again, we're going to have some fun. We're going to play catch up. February's in the books. We're two months in. We got to take stock of where things stand. I like to bring in the big brains to help me do that. So it's going to be a fun week of podcast. Thank you to all of you listeners who do tune in day in, day out. And of course, if you're looking for more content, college tennis related, etc., Great Shot podcast, Cracked Interviews podcast feed. We talk all things Breakpoint, of course, as well over on the Breakpoint show myself, Gil Gross. So we got plenty of content for all of you tennis fans. Be sure to check all those shows out on our website, CrackedRackets.com or wherever you listen to your podcast. Of course, a shout out as well to our dear friends at Tennis Point. You all know the deal. So I'll just say it briefly, tennis-point.com. The promo code is CR15 for all of the latest and greatest products in the tennis world. Okay, who's back? That's the theme from the past week in the pro tennis world. And I think most relevant moving forward is the return of Barbara Krejcikova to top 10 form because look, across the board, WTA Tour, ATP Tour, it, there's not, you know, it's it's a handful of players who have single slam titles, right? You look on the men's side right now who are active players who have won slam titles. You've got Djokovic, Nadal, Medvedev, Chilich, Wawrinka, sort of, but I don't know if you consider him in a slam winning. Ca- I mean, obviously he's active. He has a slam title, so he counts. But again, how relevant of a, is he in the slam conversation right now? How relevant is Dominic Team in the slam conversation right now? You can count the guys on the men's side on one hand, of course, and much of that is given the dominance of guys like Djokovic, Nadal, and of course, Roger Federer over the years. Andy Murray, I can't believe I didn't say him. He's another obviously active slam champion. Although, again, yes, we feel better about him. How, how, how likely is he to be winning a slam title ever again in his career? I think most of us would bet he won't before he would. Um, anyways, that's on the men's side of things. You can see where my brain is at. On the women's side of things, who are active players who have won a slam title in singles? Iga Sviantek's got three. Sabalenka's got one. Rabakina's got one. Victoria Azarenka, Petra Kvitova each have a couple. Simona Halep, so that's six. Ostapenko is seven. But again, those last three, Andrescu's eight, Radakanu's nine, Kennan's ten. But, you know, again, now we're getting a little lower and a little more variance down the tier. Sloan Stevens, 11. But again, how many of those players are currently playing their best tennis? Iga, certainly. Sabalenka, certainly. Rabakina, you feel like her best tennis is either being played or still ahead of her. And then you've got Barbara Krejcikova. That's probably the only other player you would say is playing close to her best tennis right now of that slam winning list. Ostapenko would be interesting in the conversation, but we're not going to go on that tangent right now. The point is that's why what Barbara Krejcikova did over the course of the, this past week was so relevant. You look for Krejcikova wins over Kasikina, Kvitova, Sabalenka, Pegula, Sviantek, and I don't want to throw away her win in the first round over Arena Camilla Begu, who has been 
a consistent top 50 player over the course of the past year. So, you know, you look for that six top 50 wins all in the course of a week. Like, again, that's a ridiculous run of success. That's You win seven matches over two weeks at a slam. She won six matches where she beat four top 10 opponents, five top 20 opponents, six top 50 opponents. She did it all within the span of eight days. That's ridiculous for Barbara Krejcikova. That is a remarkable run of success. And you consider she had played three three-set matches. She went 7-5 in the third, over two and a half hours against Kasatkina in the round of 32, two hours against Sabalenka in the quarterfinals, two hours against Pagula in the semifinals. And then, again, she plays her best tennis in the final, a 6-4, 6-2 victory, an hour and a half win over Iga Sviantek. And you look for Barbara Krejcikova now, she's 20-5. and five since the end of the U.S. Open last year, since the start of her run to the title in Tallinn, and she won back-to-back titles, Tallinn, Ostrava, 20-5 and five overall. She's won three total titles in what? Three, four, five, six, seven, eight events played. So three titles in eight events played. She made round of 16 at Australian Open before losing to Pagula. Her losses during this time, 7-6 in the third to Kudermatova and Doha. Five and six to Samsonova in Abu Dhabi. Samsonova, by the way, made the final of Abu Dhabi. I believe Kudermatova's semifinals in Doha. Pagula was what? Semifinals, quarterfinals, whatever it was in Australia. But we know that's not a bad loss. She loses to Kasatkina in straights, but that's first tournament of the season. Who cares? She lost to Kalinskaya after winning back-to-back titles in Tallinn, Ostrava, and Guadalajara to end last year. There's not a bad loss on her resume over the course now of four consecutive months. And... You know, what's most impressive during this stretch in time, 20-5 and five overall, listen to who her wins are against. She's 9-4 and four against top 20 opponents. She has two wins over Iga in finals, a win over Sabalenka, a win over Pagula, a win over Kasakina, a win over Bencic, a win over Haddad Maya, a win over Kontave and Kvitova for what it's worth as well. But, I mean, again, Sabalenka, Sviantek, Pagula are probably your three best players in the world right now. And she has wins or multiple wins over all of them in the past four months. You look at her from a serving perspective. She is serving at an elite, elite level to start this 2022 season. Barbara Krejcikova right now holding, or at least in Ostrava, she was holding over 80% of the time. She's at 75.3 to start this year. That's about 4.2% better than the average right now, 71.1 over the past week. She's breaking serve 39.4% of the time. That's about 3% better than the average top 50 player. Again, she would be one of three players right now. It would be her, it would be Sviantek, it would be Pagula, who ranked top 15 in both hold and break percentage. And analytically, she's one of the three best players in the world over the last five months. I test-wise, result-wise, she has been one of the three best players over the last five months. And by winning this Masters, or excuse me, 1,000-level title, Krejcikova is back up to number 16 in the world, where, let's be honest, she belongs. And, you know, again, the four top 10 wins consecutively at our, not consecutively, but four top 10 wins at a single event, that's extraordinarily rare. And you look at our dear friends at Opta Ace, who, of course, tweet out some of the best stats in the business. Opta Ace talked about how rare that is for a player to earn four top 10 victories in a single event. In fact, and I'm scrolling down here, I apologize. She's the fifth female player to beat the number one, number two, and three in a single tournament, which she does, which wins over Sviantek, Pagula, and Sabalenka. She's just the fifth player to do that, joining Sabalenka, Venus, Serena, and Steffi Graf. Uh, yeah, that's a pretty good freaking list to be joining. And, you know, again, I think that was the big one, is that she's the fifth player to beat the number one, two, and three in a single event, as well as the four top 10 wins is extraordinarily impressive on top of that as well. But like, come on now, Venus, Serena, Graf, and I love that Sabalenka's on that list as well. Speaks to how special this run for Krejcikova was, and I know Tumaini Cariel tweeted it out following her title here. This is a sentiment I've expressed before on Twitter as well. There's not a doubt in the world Barbara Krejcikova is a Hall of Fame player at this point. She's won Roland Garros, Dubai 1,000-level singles titles, career-high number two in singles, obviously career-high number one in doubles, where she's won already seven slams, an Olympic gold, the WTA Tour finals. She also has three mixed doubles slam titles. I mean, come on, she's got 11 slams. She's won one in each category. She's a gold medalist. She's been ranked number one in doubles, number two in singles. It's an unequivocal Hall of Fame career. She could retire today at 27 years old, and Barbara Krejcikova is getting into the Hall of Fame. And then again, let's talk structurally. Four and two victory over Iga Sviantek. There's 
I think Krejcikova is perhaps better suited on the return of serve to face Sviantek than maybe any player in the WTA top 20. And it's her ability to take that ball early on the rise, absorb and redirect the topspin, the kick serve that Sviantek sends at her. Barbara Krejcikova is never more ha- is never more satisfied than when she gets to just bunt down on the ball. She gets to say, thank you for the topspin. Now I get to extend through my backhand. Now I get to drive that ball that much more and know your topspin is going to keep that ball down and in the court. And that's what she did so well against Iga Sviantek. Every time Sviantek hit that high loopy on the slide backhand, Krejcikova's taking it early on the short hop and just extending through it so gorgeously, of course. Look, you don't get to number one in the world in doubles without being elite on the return of serve and the depth Krejcikova generates on both the forehand, backhand return of serve, how early she was taking the ball, how comfortable she is moving forward. She is probably the best volleyer in the WTA Top 100. Obviously, she's number one in the world in doubles, so I don't know how hot of a take that is, but just the depth she generates, she always knows where to go, what to do, gets great pace on that first ball. You know, again, she's not hitting pop-ups for Iga to get easy looks at a second pass with. She is driving the ball, and Iga has to come up with the impossible. Look, I'm well aware. Iga Sviantek was sick during that final, and I don't mean like sick. I mean like she was ill. Uh, you could tell. She was fighting a virus the entire week. You know, the fact that she got through golf 4-2 and two and, you know, blitzed out to what it was at like a 5-1 lead in the first set and then blitzed out, I think it was 3-love or maybe even 4-love in the second set as well. I said it last week. I'll say it again. I think Iga is just the better version of Goff, unfortunately, right now for Coco. Coco's backhand is elite. Sviantek's might be generational, might be, dare I say, in the running for the best of all time. You know, again, Coco hits the big first serve. Iga's the best returner on the WTA Tour. Coco has the forehand, you know, again, both of them have forehand extreme grips, and yet Sviantek hits with such heavy topspin to that forehand that it's just even more difficult for Coco to deal with than Iga. Iga played great in that semifinal. That's what I'm trying to say. She played great in wins over Samson over Fernandez. And let's be clear, even in only playing what? She got six matches in this Middle East stretch, seven matches. Wins over Goff, Samsonova, Pagula, Kudermatova, Collins, and then the tight loss, uh, you know, tough loss to Krejcikova. But, you know, you could just tell, again, Krejcikova was on top of every second serve return. Sviantek only won 24% of her second serve return, uh, second serves throughout the course of the match. Krejcikova, you know, the book is out on Iga. You got to play extraordinarily aggressive. And there's like five players in the world who are capable of playing with both the requisite aggression and then staying consistent enough through that aggression to impose their weapons on Iga Sviantek. And Krejcikova is one of those players. And again, it's the backhand in particular. Her backhand is so con- uh, so condensed and she extends through it so well I don't want to say she can beat Iga in the backhand-to-backhand exchange, but she can play her even. She can redirect that backhand down the line to pressure that Iga forehand with depth. Again, it's the heavy topspin is something Krejcikova likes to see because she can absorb your pace. She can bunt down on it, redirect that ball a little bit more easier. No, it's going to stay within the baseline when she goes down the line because Iga plays with so much topspin. Again, I was you. it's how she turned things around. You know, again, against Jessica Pagula... She takes the first set 6-1. She's ripping everything early on the rise. She has Pagula on the sprint. Then things go astray, and the errors begin to pile up, and she goes down 5-3 in that second set, and yet she fought her way back there 2-5-all, and Pagula had to scrap her way to a 7-5 set. Krejcikova double faulting on the set point. It felt like that was the only way Pagula was going to take this set as if Krejcikova handed it to her with some errors, but then Krejcikova righted the ship again on the return of serve all week long. She was just blitzing returns. She won over 50% of her second serve points in every match that she played. She won over 43% of her first return points in four of the five matches that she played. Excuse me, in five of the six matches that she played. The only player she was under 45, uh, 43% on on the first serves was Sabalenka. And again, I think we can all understand why when that 100 20 mile per hour missiles coming at you. There's not a lot you can do, but Krejcikova is back. And again, back up to number 16 in the live rankings with this result. She is, if not, you know, again, she's in the Pagula tier. I say right now there are, you add them all up, three and a half players in tier one. Sviantek, Sabalenka, in my opinion, firmly ensconced in tier one. Their ceiling, when they play their best, they're going to beat whoever's on the other side of the court. I think Krejcikova, I think Pagula, 
I think Rabakina are all in tier one and a half to tier two. Where look, like unless you're really good, you're not beating Krejcikova. You're not beating Pagula. Unless you have a weapon to hit Rabakina off the court or she just has one of those days. You know, again, her best is she, why she gets in this category is because we've seen, obviously, at Wimbledon and making the finals at the Australian Open, her best can also be better than anyone's best on a given day. Jabur, when healthy, you would say maybe she belongs in that category. Still, what's the weapon she has to match those other three? I mean, again, I guess her cool. It's tough, but she probably belongs in that category with healthy. Maybe that's your tier two. Maybe that's just straight up that's your tier two, where all those players are capable of challenging those tier one talents, and yet they got to play their best to beat the tier one. Now, one and a half feels right because you know they're going to be in the mix, and these are players who can challenge for titles. Yeah, tier one and a half for Krejcikova. Not firmly ensconced in tier one. I want to see it for another month. I want to see it during the sunshine swing. But she is back into, you know, again, you just feel like she's going to be in the second week of or the final stages of every event that she plays because unless you have a weapon to really hit her off the spot and even then she can still beat you with her own weapons. She's so efficient in everything that she does. Heck of a week for Krejcikova. She takes the title in Dubai uh, and you look for Krejcikova again, first 1,000 level title, but now you look for her overall in her career at the tour level. It is title number, I believe, yeah, number six for Krejcikova in her career. All those titles coming since May 2021. She's won six titles in, what, a year and three quarters. And she's won titles in Ostrava, Tallinn, Dubai, Roland Garros, Strasbourg, Prague. That's a nice collection for Barbara Krejcikova. Again, the sixth singles title at the tour level of her career. As for Iga, I mean, you feel pretty good if you're Iga Nation coming out of this event. I mean, now Iga is 65 and nine over her last 52 weeks. That's ridiculous. She's won 88% of her matches, 12 and three to start this year with losses to peaking Pagula, peaking Rabakina, peaking Krejcikova. Okay, there are some players who, when they play their absolute best, can beat Iga. I think that says more about those players than it does about Iga. We all saw the level Krejcikova played at. I mean, did you see the stick save lob over Sviantek's head to make it a 5-2 lead in the second set, I believe, or 4-1, whatever that was? Even that lob was going in. She was guessing correct. She just had a read on Iga. She played outstanding. Like, Rabakina served lights out in the Australian Open. Pagula, every ball she touched from the baseline was a down-the-line winner in that United Cup match. Again, I'm not making excuses for Iga. Like, yeah, if you play overwhelmingly aggressive, if you can take time away from Iga Sviantek, you're going to have the opportunity to beat her. It's still really hard to do that. And, like, again, these players we're talking about who are capable of doing it are three of the best players when at their peaks right now in the world. Like, I think it says more about them. You know, again, for Iga, it does say the forehand still is a little bit susceptible to pace. To She'll shank that ball. She'll leave it short. You can jump on it, attack it. She, obviously, I, I thought the first serve was better. The second serve can sometimes sit up, but you could say that about any player. 21 years old. I got no problem with the progress of Iga. Four, 12 and 3, excuse me, to start the year. I think she's off to a damn good start defending all those points as world number one. Again, she comes out of her Middle East stretch with a title in Doha, a final in Dubai. It's not even a guess who's back. She just hasn't gone anywhere. Iga Sviantek winning 80% of her matches through the first two months of the season. Yeah, she's holding up just fine. By the way, I thought Coco played fine. She didn't serve particularly well against Sviantek. She only made 59% of her first serves, and you know that's obviously not good enough when you're facing someone who takes the return of serve as early, as aggressively, and can generate as much depth as Sviantek does. I mean, look, like it's, it's a tough matchup for Coco. Everything Coco does, Iga does better. I already went on that rant. She got off to too slow of a start. She just was not landing first serve. She was down 5-1 before you knew it in that first set. And she did great to level, you know, or to try and narrow the gap there. Played with great physicality. Again, can match Sviantek backhand to backhand at times. No doubt about that. But, you know, it was her first 6-4 set. She lost, I think it was like nine consecutive sets, 6-3 or worse. And she finally gets a 6-4 set here in the first it's just Iga came out too aggressive, you know, or Iga came out extraordinarily aggressive. Coco couldn't do anything to disrupt that rhythm and wasn't putting enough first serves in play. That's obviously going to be the big disruptor in her first serve continues to get better. Again, right now, golf, one of eight players to rank top 25 in both hold and break percentage and her return of serve. She's top 15 in break serve, which is a testament to the improvement and breaking serve, a testament to the improvements, excuse me, of her forehand. 
Yeah, Goff lost three sets to Kudobertova, straight sets to Sviantec, quarterfinals, semifinals, Doha, Dubai. You look for Goff to start this 2023 season 11-3 overall. Title in Auckland, round of 16 Australia, quarters Doha, f- uh, semis Dubai, but she already has wins this year's over Radakanu, Rabakana, Kavitova, Keys. It's a good start for the 18-year-old who's currently sitting with this semifinal run at number six in the live rankings. Yeah. Top 10 in both singles and doubles. You look for Jessica Pagula. Uh, she lost to Krejcikova. Six, like, again, Krejcikova played great, and that is the issue, right? Pagula doesn't have that overwhelming weapon to just make sure every match she plays is on her terms, but she's so relentless. Her floor is as high as any player you're going to find on the WT Tour, 48-20 and 20 over her last 52 weeks. I mean, come on. She's won 71% of her matches. She's made 10 total quarterfinals. She hasn't lost. You know, you look at... Her last seven events, she's made quarterfinals Cincy, quarterfinals U.S. Open, or quarterfinals uh, further in San Diego, quarterfinals are further in Guadalajara, quarterfinals this year's Aussie, final of Doha, semifinal Dubai. I mean, again, that's seven straight tournaments. They're all high. Oh, and I forgot Toronto. So eight straight events with four of, three of them being 1,000-level events, two of them being slams, eight straight events she's made the quarterfinals or further. I mean, number three in the world, unequivocally top of tier two, if not bottom of, again, she peaks her head. She's the groundhog kind of tier one in the sense. She doesn't lose to anyone worse than her tier two in the sense that if you have the overwhelming weapon, if you play elite, elite, elite top five tennis, typically you go through Jessica Pagula on your way to the title right now. And so again, that's not a knock against Pagula. She's, she is number three in the world. That's just like, that's the perfect place for her to be right now in the rankings. But again, that's your action from Dubai, the biggest movers in the rankings. Krechikova up 14 spots by making the final. Iga holds on to that number one spot. Does drop off 315 points, but still up by more than 4,000 points. So still two slam titles separating her and Arena Sabalenka right now between that one and two spots. Yeah, that's a ridiculous lead for Iga Sviantek. That said, that's your action coming out of Dubai. Let's move over now to some of the men's side of things, and we'll actually go through all three of those men's events now. Let's start in Doha. You look at Daniil Medvedev, Andy Murray final. I, I suppose it was never really in doubt for Medvedev. He was constantly up a break. Even when Murray got the breaks back in set number one, it felt like uh, Medvedev continued to then immediately get that break lead back. And, you know, again, I I don't think anything was ever in doubt. You look for Daniil Medvedev, who ultimately earns a 4-4 win in the final over Murray. I mean, just quickly on Medvedev, 14-2 to start this 2023 season. He's breaking serve 40.9% of the time. I mean, Come on now. And it's not as though he hasn't played servers, right? He's played Felix twice. He's gotten two wins over him. He's beaten top 25 servers in Dimitrov, in Sinner, in Hachinov as well. Now, you do look at some of the guys he's played. Murray, Brody, Botic, Davidovich, Fokina, Giron, Milman, Kesmenovich. I mean, those are guys he should be breaking four or five times per match. But guess what? He's doing that. He's just in ball machine mode. There's a level of physicality. And quick tangent. I was thinking about this today as I saw some Twitter chatter, some concern about the consistent or the persistent injuries of Carlos Alcaraz, Yannick Sinner, two young guys who just seem like they're always banged up. You remember when Djokovic was always banged up back in 2009, 10 range when it was always like, oh, he's always seems to be injured or the fitness isn't quite there. And, you know, then all of a sudden he gives up gluten. Then all of a sudden it's 2011 and you look in 2011, what Djokovic is in 87. So in 2011, he turned 23, 24 years old. Then he became Novak Djokovic. Then he was the guy who ripped off whatever it was, 42 straight victories to start the 2011 season was just this physical specimen. You know, Yannick Sinner's 21. Carlos Alcaraz is 19. Two and four years away, respectively, from being in that Djokovic moment where you're 23, 24 years old. And now, again, as you start to hit your physical prime, that physicality, the persistent injuries, now if they continue to linger, then it becomes a concern. I just wanted to remind you of that factor, uh, of that historical fact, the idea that Novak Djokovic used to be considered a guy who we had questions about his durability, and now no one ever questions the durability, the longevity of a guy who just won an Australian Open with however millimeter tear he had in his hamstring or whatever that storyline was. I mean, again, 
all of this is, and that's not to minimize what Djokovic just did, by the way. I said that jo- spare, jokingly as if to say, look, I apologize. I don't know the specifics of his hamstring tear, how many millimeters pr- particularly it was, uh, it was, uh, it was torn. Don't, don't, uh, Pavi G, don't accuse me of being part of the conspiracy, whatever that tweet was. I'm not even, I'm not getting into that right now. Um, the point is, again, it took Djokovic till 2011 to become that guy physically. I think we can afford to give Sinner and Alcaraz till 2024, 2025, even 2026 to become that sort of physical specimen. But, you know, Daniil Medvedev at, what, he turns 27 years old this year, or he recently turned 27 years old here to start the month. He should be that level of phys- – he should possess that level of physicality. He should be in his athletic prime. And if you watched him at all throughout the course of his run in Rotterdam, especially in Doha, I don't know how you get a ball past this guy. Like he is in that octopus mode where he is just everywhere. His ability to absorb redirect pace on that backhand wing, watching him and Murray go backhand to backhand, that's just like – that's tennis porn to me. I'm sorry. I don't know a better word to use there. I apologize, listeners. But that's just – that's nirvana. It's just like, yep – that's how the backhand should look for both of these guys. They're never going to miss it. Look at the depth. Look at the angle. The ability to redirect down the line. The ability to flatten things out. The ability to find the short angle. The ability to just do anything they want. Take it on the rise. Take it on the return of serve on the rise. Ugh, Medvedev was on one. And again, I think Medvedev is the... the. Uh, it's not fair to say the transformational... Medvedev or the modern because Andy Murray's the modern Andy Murray, but Medvedev is the 2020s next gen version of Andy Murray. You got to be a little bit bigger, right? Even though Murray's six four, Medvedev's six foot six and has the killer serve. They both struggle a little bit creating pace on the forehand wing. Although I think Medvedev's doing a lot better job of it, stepping in not only the inside in, but he's hitting his inside out forehand with authority right now. He's volleying a little bit better as well. Again, Medvedev drops just one set on his way to the title in Doha. That's now nine straight victories, including wins again over Felix twice, Murray, Sinner, Dimitrov, Botic, Davidovich, Fokina, bunch of top 50 wins uh, to kick off this 14-2 and two start. In fact, you look for Daniil Medvedev again. Losses. The Korda loss was tough, no doubt, although Korda, if you watch that match, Korda looked like the second best player in the world in his win over Medvedev. But losses to Korda and Djokovic to start the season, 14-2 and two overall, and you look for him against top 50 players. He's got nine top 50 wins, four top 20 wins. Yeah, Daniil Medvedev is back. He's breaking serve 40.9% of the time. He's not even holding serve that for his hold. The percentage is actually at 83.1, which is lower than he's been typically in the 87, 88 range over the course of the last few years. Again, you look last 52 weeks, though, Medvedev second. You know, Djokovic, the only guy to rank top 10 in both hold and break percentage. Medvedev, the only guy other than Djokovic to rank top 15 in both hold and break percentage. And now we see the results begin to manifest themselves as well. You look for Medvedev, 47 and 18. He's winning 88% of his matches. Oh, no, excuse me, this year, but uh, 72% of his matches now over the course of the last 52 weeks. I mean, yeah, uh, he's back. He, he struggled. There's no doubt. He had a little blip, six-month patch, wasn't playing his best, starting to play his best again here to start this 2023 season. And you look for Daniil Medvedev now in terms of titles won at the tour level in his career. Daniil Medvedev winning title number 18 with his run. Uh, in, he's now made 30 finals by making this final in Doha. 18 titles for him overall. I believe I, I saw a stat. Uh, oh, no, that's his. It's, they say it's his 17th. No, I think that's his 18 amongst active players. Wait, what am I missing here? What is what's, Oh, they count ATP Cup on Tennis Abstract. It is his 17th. Okay, amongst active players. Djokovic has 93. Nadal's got 92. Murray, 46. That's a crazy drop-off. Chilich, 20. Another crazy drop-off. Zverev, 19. Team and Medvedev have 17. It's more than one Vrinka. I mean, again, Daniel Medvedev, probably a Hall of Famer at this point as well, having reached world number one, having won a slam title, made multiple slam finals. 17 titles to his name following his run here in Doha. Uh, obviously was incredible. On the other side of things, I mean... Was there anything better than Andy Murray? It was death. It was taxes. It was complicated Andy Murray matches. That was the theme of the week. And you look for Murray, who reaches his third final, I believe. Excuse me. Yeah, third tour-level final since the start of 2020. Now he's 0-3 in those three finals. Hasn't won a title since Antwerp back in 2019. But 
It was the way he got to the final here this week uh, that made everything so impressive for Murray to come, you know, and play three set matches, all of them over, you know, two plus hours. He played, what, eight plus hours headed into the final, you know, comes back from five match points down against Yuri Lachetchka, 5-3 down in the third there, and you know, then made it a match. Hour 46 against Daniil Medvedev. The fitness wasn't what let him down. He just didn't have a weapon to hurt Medvedev consistently enough with. And I do think that's the biggest thing when I watch Murray play is it's a little bit harder for him to rip through the court with his forehand. Obviously, the way he tries to make up for his inability to generate easy pace from the ground is by moving forward more frequently. And he's always been a good volleyer, but now he just employs it more artfully. I think he... Again, I, like he's taking the return of serve more confidently on the rise, hitting his backhand aggressively. He punished just about any second serve look he got from Daniil Medvedev. Murray played well. He, like Again, he looks like a top 30 guy throughout the course of this week here in Doha. And with his run to the Doha final, Andy Murray now firmly ensconced back inside the top 75. He is up 18 spots to number 52 here coming out of Doha. He's scheduled to play here in Dubai this week as well. And, you know, again, I haven't looked at who the draw is for Andy Murray in this next match, but you look for Murray now since the start of 2020. He's 40, uh, 58 and 43 overall, six and three here to start this year. But, I mean, listen to the matches that he's played, right? In Adelaide, 6-3 and three against Corda, but that was two hours. He plays the five-setters against Berrettini, Kokonakis before the four-set, three-and-a-half hours against RBA. He goes three sets against Sinego, three sets against Zverev, three sets against Muller, three sets against Lehechka before an hour, 46, you know, four-and-four. Four. Really good match against Daniil Medvedev, who's playing like a top-five player in the world right now, at least over these past two weeks in the final you could just tell the fitness is better for Andy Murray. He's moving better in and out of his corners. He's hitting the backhand out of his corners now instead of being forced to play the slice, and yet he still is moving forward. He's just playing so much better. He's moving well. He seemed fit. You know, again, he's he's scheduled to play Hoopy Hercot's first round in Dubai. Jesus, that's miserable. Although I guess both guys are coming off of long matches, and I suppose that can get us to Herbie, Hoopy Hercot's here in a second, but... Uh, again, boy, is it nice to have Andy Murray back playing this level of tennis. And I do wonder, here's the quick tangent. Because a lot of tennis fans, if you're coming to age of age now, you know Andy Murray is, oh yeah, he is a guy with three slam titles. Everyone says he was really good, but you know him as this guy who plays these long, dramatic matches and sometimes does get the big wins. Like he got over Berrettini and the Kokonakis match was special, obviously, in Australia. But like, you don't consider him a threat to win the big titles the way you did Federer at the end of his career, the way you do certainly Nadal and Djokovic right now. And so again, it's it's like it's sad to me that there's going to be a generation of fans who view Murray in the stand category because they're both going to have three major titles and they were both factors in the big three era, but ultimately weren't able to have the longevity sustain as long as those other three guys were. And yet, Again, till my dying breath, I will make it my mission in life to inform tennis fans that from 2011 to 2016, it was the big four era. Yes, Djokovic, Federer, Nadal all ultimately separated themselves, but Murray was as good as all of those guys for a five-year stretch. And it was always the four of them in the Masters semifinals, in the major semifinals. One of those, one combination of those four guys were playing for every major title and Andy Murray was always in the mix. And physically, I think him and Djokovic took the game, and Nadal, took the game physically from a from a shot tolerance standpoint to just a level that we now see reflected in the modern game. The fitness, the physicality you have to possess, that's a testament to, again, the threshold pushed by Murray, Djokovic, Nadal. Go watch the 2012 Australian Open semifinal. Go watch the third set. The third set between Djokovic and Murray, 7-6 won by Andy Murray. Djokovic goes on to win the match in five. But that's the highest level of tennis I've ever seen play from a physicality standpoint. And I know I've said that before, but seriously, all I ask is one of you listeners, go watch that semifinal. Go watch till Andy Murray wins the third set, 7-6. Go watch, honestly, watch the whole full highlights for the match. It's like a 28-minute thing on YouTube. It's worth it. It's a good half hour spent, I promise. Hop on the exercise bike, throw that on. The half hour you're on the exercise bike will be over before you know it. Murray was that good. Murray was on the level, and I'm just like concerned that he's an unequivocal Hall of Famer. That's not the issue. Murray's one of the greats, and we all know it. 
But I don't think people realize what sort of tier of greatness he actually resides on. Like, I would put him firmly in scones, and I know Jeff Sackman just did the tennis 128, but I would put him on the McEnroe tier. I would put him on the Agassi tier. I know he doesn't have the slam numbers that those guys do, but he also competed against the three best players in men's tennis history, in Federer, Nadal, and Djokovic, and he still won at a rate that those guys were winning at you know, maybe slightly less at the slams, but like, go look at the slam final count. In fact, let's, I'm going to look this up right now. John McEnroe, total slam singles finals in his career. You look for John McEnroe in his career. He won seven slam titles. Shout out to him. Obviously that's extraordinarily impressive in his career. He made three, four, five U.S. Open finals, four Wimbledon. So that's nine, one French Open. So that's 10, never played the Australian Open, but still different era. He made 10 slam finals. You look for Andy Murray in his career. Slam, total slam finals. I'm going to guess the number's eight. Eight feels about right for Murray. And you look for him in his career in slam finals. He has made precisely 11 slam finals. He had eight runner-ups, three titles, 11 slam finals. I mean, do we want to do this with Andre Agassi real quick as well? Let's just do it very, very quickly. Again, we're not doing the full Andy Murray legacy talk, although, again, I'd point to Andy Murray's 2016 season and say that's one of the better seasons I've ever seen in my lifetime. And you look for Andy made at least the the quarterfinals in every major he played from the 2011 Australian Open through to the 20 – through the 2015 – Wimbledon, he then made fourth round U.S. Open that year, but don't worry, the next three finals for him were finals Aussie, finals French Open, title at Wimbledon, 11 slam finals, like, come on, during that stretch, three slam titles, you look for Andre Agassi in his career, you look at total slam finals made, Agassi made 15, I think he's in that tier. And I, again, my biggest concern is that we'll, we're and that this fight, that his comeback from injury, and to see him even sustaining a top 100 level, given the fact that he doesn't have real hips anymore, it's remarkable. Of course, it is the story right now. It's why he is the most compelling, captivating player on tour. But like, this is just your friendly reminder that Andy Murray was. Tier one, not, not tier one. Andy Murray is amazing. Like I don't know how else to say it. Andy Murray. I mean, that was my favorite player growing up because you could just see the physicality, how he wore his emotions on his sleeve. It just felt the most tangible. It felt like, okay, if I work really hard and I'm really disciplined and become obsessed with this game, I'm not saying I could ever become Andy Murray because have you ever met my parents? You'd meet – my mom would say, I'm, I'm a good athlete. My dad would say, I'm very coordinated. My dad would never say he was athletic. He would say he's very coordinated. Um, and the point is I was – look <laughs> – top five tennis player in the world was never in the cards for me um but like just again the the idea of being the best version of yourself which is what Andy Murray was during the prime of his career he extracted every ounce of physicality out of his body it was motivational it was aspiration it was something to aspire to and you know you had all that combined with the fact that he was so good he was so good I just Go watch the 2012 Australian Open semifinal. It's a match he lost, and yet, like, it's still what I'm like. I, I'm just telling you, watch the match. But that's enough on Andy Murray. Uh, I do just some final thoughts on Doha again. Medvedev the title, 17 of his career. Murray the final. Uh, how about Yuri Lachetka, who I believe reached his first ATP Tour level semifinal here in. Look, coming off of making the quarterfinals for Lachetka uh, at the Australian Open, obviously this isn't that big of a leap, but you look for Lachetka now with this run. He's currently sitting uh, at number 47 in the live rank. This means he's probably going to get in to Indian Wells, to Miami at least, and... You know, for Lachetka to start this season, he's holding serve at a ridiculous clip. Yuri Lachetka right now, 13-4 and four overall on the year with wins, by the way, over Rublev, Rusevori, Felix, Nori, Chorich. Yeah, it's a good start to his year. Holding serve 87.3% of the time. That's a top 10 number. He's a top 10 server right now on the ATP Tour amongst top 50 players. And yeah, his serve, his forehand, the depth he can generate on his backhand when his feet are set, and the improving fluidity for him as a mover he ain't leaving the top 50 in uh, for quite a bit of time, if healthy. I mean, again, he had a ton of challenger success on the clay as well. He's a good mover on that surface, and you just imagine what life might must be like facing the heaviness of that weapon uh, on that surface. So, again, credit to Yuri Lachetka, who advances uh, to his first quarterfinal. And then for Felix, 
I mean, look, wins over Davidovich, Fokina, Kubler before the 4-6 and six loss to Medvedev. He's now 0-6 against Medvedev. Had so many chances in the second set. And, you know, again, did a good job of, in the second set, putting his head down and saying, you know what, I'm moving forward. He passes me, so be it. This is the game plan I have to employ. I'm just not beating him when we're playing these long, sustained baseline rallies. I love that mentality. He just he blinked at the end of that second set breaker, which will happen when the margins are that thin. Again, it was a really good 4-6 match. I'm feeling stock up on Felix, who, by the way, is playing in Dubai again. He's got Cressy. That's going to be a fun matchup in round number one. So, solid week for Felix, who, again, has sustained himself. He's still sitting right now. Felix Ogier-Aliassime sitting at number nine in the live rankings. Not the worst place to be when you're 22 years old. But that's your action from the weekend in Doha. I think I spent long enough on that. Let's move on now to the action that happened, of course, in Rio. And I'm going to go a little bit quicker through these last three events. We did a full breakdown of the South American swing last week. So if you want to hear my extended thoughts on all the ATP red clay action, go check out that podcast with David Gertler. Hey, it's Kaylee Cuoco for Priceline. Ready to go to your happy place for a happy price? Well, why didn't you say so? Just download the Priceline app right now and save up to 60% on hotels. So whether it's Cousin Kevin's Kazoo concert in Kansas City, go Kevin! Or Becky's Bachelorette Bash in Bermuda, you never have to miss a trip ever again. So download the Priceline app today. Your savings are waiting. Go to your happy place for a happy price. Go to your happy price. Priceline. How about Cam freaking Nori, though? I mean, Cam's just so good. He really is. And I never saw this coming, having followed him, even when he was the number one. You know, again, people forget about this. Cam Nori was committed to Michigan. He was going to go play for Bruce Burke in Ann Arbor. I was going to be a sophomore on campus at the time. So, of course, I was following Cam Nori's career. He was a top 10 junior in the world. And, you know, the lefty has always been able to work the ball around the court and You know, again, though, to see him become this sort of athlete, this sort of monster physically. I mean, Nori's played 80 matches over the last 52 weeks. He's 57 and 23. He's won 71% of his matches. He's made the final five different times, but he's made the quarterfinals of 11 different events. He's done it on all three surfaces, all four, if you want to differentiate between indoor and outdoor hard courts. Of course, he goes and plays the clay where he gets pushed three sets in one, two, three, four different, five different matches that he plays and yet, you know, loses to Alcaraz three and five in Buenos Aires, is down seven, five, three love, love 30 to Carlos Alcaraz, who, yeah, was having some leg issues, but it just was striking the ball so cleanly. It felt like Alcaraz was going to blitz through the finish line. Cam Nori sunk his teeth and starts hitting these high, loopy, heavy balls, which, of course, with Alcaraz dealing with the leg issues, just, you know, what it started, had to get a little trigger happy. And, you know, the error started to pile up. Nori, again, just sustaining, working to the outer thirds, absorbing the first blow, moving forward when the opportunity calls for it, ignoring the Alcaraz brilliance that happens time in, time out. Again, for for Nori to get three consecutive three set wins, quarters, semis, and finals. We, you know, again, when he played a two and a half hour five and listen to his court time this week, five and five over Montero in the round of sixteen, two and a half hours, six four in the third over Delhi in an hour fifty five, seven six in the third over Zapata Morales, two and a half hours, seven five in the third over Alcaraz, two hours forty one minutes on red clay. Does this man have it? You know, he probably lost fifteen pounds this week. Like, again, just getting in the work. You know how much you sweat, how physical that clay court tennis can be. I would love to know, did Cam Nori lose seven pounds, eight pounds over these last two weeks? How has he gone about sustaining himself? Because the guy does not quit. He's changing directions better, hitting his forehand more authoritatively. I loved how much pressure he put on Alcaraz moving forward in set number one. Even though he dropped the set, I do think... The totality of the aggression, ultimately, again, Alcaraz paid for it on his body. I mean, for Cam Nori now, you look for him overall. Again, I mentioned that 47-23 and 23 result. You look for him now in his career in tour-level play. Cam Nori now uh, has reached the final of 14 different ATP events. He's now won five different titles, including now a 500 here at Rio. He's won a 1,000-level at Indian Wells. Obviously made a semifinal at Wimbledon as well. Cam freaking Nori with his win here at this 500 at Rio. He'll jump back up to number 12 in the live rankings. He's currently less than 300, oh no, less than 400 points behind Holger Runa with, you know, again, the sunshine swing coming up. 
I mean, Nori's just a nightmare. To he just moves the ball. He doesn't have a weakness, and he moves the ball well around the court. Again, Alcaraz was playing lights out. Sometimes Alcaraz lines up a bazooka of a kick-serve-wide, forehand-inside-in combination. You know what's coming, and there's just absolutely nothing you can do about it. That's the definition of a non-negotiable weapon. I already went on the Alcaraz health rant, so I'm not doing that again. I don't feel any stock lower about Carlos Alcaraz coming out of this week in Rio. It's stock up on Cam Nori. Uh, you're always wondering, you know, again, he put together a top 10 season in 2021, you know, year-end finals, uh, excuse me, in, uh, yeah, in 2021. And, you know, for him that year, uh, he made six different finals and, again, does qualify, get to play a couple of matches at the tour finals. He goes uh, last season, uh, you know, was fringes top 10 guy. And if there are points offered for his Wimbledon semifinal, he probably ends the year at the World Tour finals as well. And, you know, now you look for him to start this season. He's 18 and 3, 18 and 3 through two months. Holden serve 81.9% of the time. That would rank 27th, so he's not quite a top 25 club guy, but he is a top 10 returner, 27.9% break percentage. That's elite of the elite. He has wins now over Alcaraz this year, over Fritz, over Nadal, over Diemenauer. Uh, obviously, tough loss, five sets to Lechechka at the Australian Open, but we all know now how good, obviously, Yuri Lechechka has been. Tough loss in the Auckland final to Gasquet, but I think he's made up for it by getting the title monkey off his back. The win over Alcaraz here today. Kenmore's the real deal. I mean, he just is. He is a top 15 guy, a testament to tortoise in the hair. Be be the tortoise, the slow, steady development of Nori. Again, the guy is just a physical specimen, 27 years old, so clearly in the prime of his career. That's a hell of a win for him over Alcaraz. And I mean, again, I already did the Alcaraz health rant, so I don't have anything more to add. I'm all in still on Al- Carlos Alcaraz. I don't know what the case against him would be at this point. Um, yeah, again, 19 years old. Doesn't turn 20 until May 5th. I don't know what the case against Alcaraz is. If I'm happy to hear it, Adel Gruskin, but I don't know what the case against him would be at this point. Shout out to my near birthday brother, uh, Nicolas Yari. Yari. 27 years old, five days younger than me. Same birthday as my roommate, just a year younger than him for what it's worth, I know. Don't you guys always like these birthday updates? But Yari, by making the semifinals back into the top 100 now, he's back up to number 87, is the 27-year-old. Look, he got dinged for for a positive doping test and was suspended for for multiple months. I know that. Um, I believe in second chances. And I believe his serve, his forehand, are monstrosities of weapons. You look for him, wins over Sarundolo, Carabelli, Musetti, Martinez, and Baez all in straight sets. He really should have beaten Alcaraz. He was up, you know, takes that first set 7-6, had a couple of breakpoint chances in the second, but let it slip away. And then, you know, again, Alcaraz cruises in set number three. And so that one was tough. You know, again, Furiari needs some time to assert himself. It's a huge serve. He needs some time, though, because it's a big forehand backswing. But, boy, when he has it, 6'6", can explode through it. The backhand continues to get better. He's got weapons. That's, uh, again, he should be a top 100 player. Then how about Bernabe Zapata Morales? 26 years old is the Spaniard. Really good clay court stretch for him. Semifinals, Buenos Aires. Semifinals, Rio. In each instance, loss, losses, excuse me, to the eventual champion, Alcaraz and Nori, but wins over Ramos. Francisco Sarandolo twice. Munar, Schwartzman, Martinez unequivocally a top 50 guy on clay courts, which by the way makes sense as the majority of his finals in his career have come on clay at the challenger level. But, you know, again, he's put himself in the top 75 with this European clay court stretch coming up. That just means he's, you know, again, when he makes his top 50 debut and is a top 50, no one would want any part of him in the first round of the French Open of Palmas seed. He would be a dangerous floater to take on like a 27-seeded Alex Diemenauer. I feel like or if Demon Hour is the 22 seed and plays Zapata Morales, I'm picking Zapata Morales for the upset in that one. But again, Baez, Lajovic, Ramos Unolas cranks out a couple of quarterfinals in this clay court swing. Yeah, semis Cordoba, quarters of Rio. Of course, he's playing this week in Santiago as well. Still one more week to go. So before the clay court, the South American clay court month has ended. So, of course, we'll keep you updated on all of that action this week. But that's what went down in Rio over in Marseille. 
I mean, credit to Hubi Hurkats. Ends up in the winner's circle. Hurkats wins over Bublik Bonzi on championship weekend. You look for Hubi Hurkats now, 43-21. and 21. He's won over two-thirds of his matches. So, yeah, it makes sense that he's currently sitting at number 11 in the live rankings considering the level of play most of these results come at. You look for Hubi now. He's made the quarterfinals in 10 events in his last 52 weeks, four of them at the Masters events. Of course, now you look for him. It's his second title in his last 52 weeks. He won Hala last June. Now the win in Marseille. You look for Hubi Hurkats in his career at the tour level. He has now won a fairly impressive six tour finals. He's 6-1, and one, by the way, in the seven finals that he played. His one loss coming last year in the Canada final, 6-3 in the third, to a very much informed Carreño Busta. That's clutch. And look again, the forehand was horrible for Hubi. Was spraying all over the place in his matchup against Michael Emer in the quarterfinals, but gets through that. Four and six over Bublik wasn't broken. Three and four over Bonzi. He got broken, I believe, in set number one, but immediately got or was up a break in set one, got broken back for three uh for for three four, immediately got the break back four, five, three, and then served out the set. And then the big thing for Hercots, he was down set points, five, six, down three set points. How does he get out of them? One with an ace out wide, two with beautifully executed first serve, first forehands, one cross court on the first forehand, the other first forehand inside out. And that was the forehand that had betrayed him, not just against Emer, but that's how you beat Hercots. Serve, pace, through the forehand. His forehand will spray with on him as an approach. That's really the only way to beat him, though, because he's going to match you physically. I mentioned the physical tier Daniil Medvedev's on. I think Kubi Hurkacz is right there with him. One of the better movers you will find on the ATP Tour uses his length, his elite explosion so well. Probably the best best volleyer, not named. No, probably the best volleyer uh, in the ATP Top 50 right now as well. I mean, again, like Bonzi... Played really well, had some good, you know, played some good extended rallies, moved the ball well around the court. Hercots won 93% of his first serve points. He hit another 15 plus aces, and Hubi Hercots has more aces in his last 52 weeks, has played more matches than the other guys in the top five, but has, has more aces in his last 52 weeks than any other player in the top 50. His ace percentage, how frequently he's hitting aces, ranks fourth amongst top 50 players as well. I mean, again, it's a non-negotiable weapon. He follows it so well moving forward, and then he can employ a plan B, plan C, plan D by matching and exploiting uh, your physicality as well. So I continue to buy stock in the 26-year-old. I just think, by the way, I think he's exactly a year younger than Daniil Medvedev. I think Medvedev is February 11th, 96, and Hercats is February 11th, 97. So if you want your kid to be top 15, you want them to be six foot six and really athletic, make sure they're born on February 11th. That's the lesson we learn here on today's mini break. But credit to Bonzi has now made two career finals, both of them coming here in the first two months of the season with this result. Benjamin Bonzi uh, up to number 45 in the live rankings, three off his career high of 42. But just again, after a historic type of quali- uh, of challenger season, excuse me, during the 2021 calendar year, it's great to see Bonzi sustain that success now here on the ATP Tour as well. So credit to Benjamin Bonzi, finalist. And then shout out to Arthur Fees, uh, the 18-year-old Frenchman is now up to number 104 in the live rankings. First career semifinals, four fees uh, coming over in Montpellier and Marseille in two of these last three weeks here in France. Uh, yeah, again, I said it all week, something to get excited about. Boy, can he hit the cover off the ball. And then for Sasha Bublik, I think it snapped the what? Two, four, six, eight, ten match losing streak. Yeah, he had, he had lost ten consecutive matches coming into Marseille. Uh Needed this semifinal like a fire needs oxygen. And now for Bublik, by making this run, he's back up to number 46 in the live rankings, keeping him alive for that sunshine swing. But uh, again, that's your big action coming out of Marseille. Uh, we'll talk again. This is the week, folks. This is the week we do the Demon Hour, Hatchinov, Make or Break Season podcast. I think this is the week it's finally going to happen. And then last but certainly not least... Guess who's back? Camilla Giorgi earning the title in Mexico. You look for Giorgi, 7-6-1-6-6-2 win over Peterson in the semis. Got a three-set win over Katie Mc... Uh, excuse me, a five and six win over Sinyakova. 0-0 win over Sloan Stevens at the quarterfinals. Not a lot of 0-0s you see uh, in life, but you look for Camilla Giorgi. It's her first title since winning Montreal back in 2021. It's her fourth career tour-level title. Uh 
yeah, I mean, with this result now, Georgie currently sitting at number 46. So she's up 22 spots back into the WTA top 50, uh, which is where you want to be going into the sunshine swing. And yeah, I mean, again, you know the weapons Georgie possesses. It's just about how checked in is she in any given week. Good week for Rebecca Peterson, who's back into the top 100 with this final, the 21-year-old up 41 spots up to number 99 in the live rankings. Uh Shout out to Katie McNally, who just continues to further solidify her place. She's up to a new career high, number 75 in the live rankings for the 21-year-old with her semifinal. And yeah, that's where she belongs. Again, she's doing everything Alicia Parks has done. Just didn't quite get over the final for the signature title run. But her and Alicia Parks are two Americans who have been thriving over the course of the last five months. And I'm pretty sure I had McNally to finish in my top 100, uh, in my top 10 American women to end the year in the podcast we did with Ben Rothenberg. So shout out to the lists. Shout out to McNally, the serve, the forehand. She won the doubles title, by the way. And again, her doubles ranking is ahead of her singles ranking for now. Although, who knows? I, I think it'll actually, because I think Katie McNally will be one of the 10 best doubles player for the rest of her career, as long as she wants to be. And as soon as she gets back to the same events that Coco Goff is playing, it wouldn't shock me at all to see Makoko run it back, because it'll just become more convenient to do so week in, week out. And we know how good that doubles pairing can be. So, again, I know that was a little short. I apologize. Mexico and Merida was the one event uh, I unfortunately tracked the least throughout the course of the week. But again, a jam-packed week of action. So many players back to their top form on the WTA and ATP tours. With all of that said, of course, we'll be back this week to cover all of the action across the professional tennis world. We also cover all the Division I men's and women's college tennis action each and every Tuesday and Wednesday on our Cracked Rackets YouTube channel. Be sure to check out those episodes of The Deciding Point every week, 9 p.m. Eastern time, again, on our Cracked Rackets YouTube channel. A shout-out, as always, to our super producer, Daniel stuff for the of editing job he does day in day out making all of our content possible shout out as well to our dear friends at tennis point remember it's tennis-point.com the promo code is cr15 with all of that said for our fantastic super producer daniel westoff our friends at tennis point from all of us here at both cracked rackets and the tennis channel podcast network i'm your host alex gruskin you know what we say that's the break and we'll talk to you all tomorrow thanks everyone <laughs>